welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Myers. I'm very sad to announce Kate Behan is no longer going to be on the show. She felt that she just didn't have time to fit it into her schedule, and we both decided it just wasn't the right fit. So from now on, it's just you and me, kids. That is uh, that is until I get the next uh, podcast co-host to uh, torture you. <laughs> But today I'm interviewing author and journalist Moises Velasquez Manoff, author of the new book, An Epidemic of Absence. I just, uh, I love that title. It speaks so much about the, uh, the problems that we're having in our guts today. I heard him on the Chris Kresser podcast, my personal favorite podcast, after my own, of course. And uh, I had to have him on the show because his thoughts on the true underlying causes of disease and immune system malfunction are incredibly compelling and cutting edge. And he postulates basically that many of the health crises we face today are due to the absence or degradation of our gut microbiota or gut flora. This challenges deeply entrenched notions about the value of societal hygiene and the harmful nature of microbes. But before the show, I have to do a little disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature. Please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment I suggest on the show. And yes, this disclaimer applies heavily to the show because we're going to be talking about infecting yourself with hookworms and fecal transplants. (laughs) Yes, I said it, fecal transplants. (laughs) So do not try this at home. I find it wonderfully ironic that you need to add bacteria in the form of, of a fecal transplant to your butt to clean it up. Strange, but it works. And, you know, one thing I always tell my husband is that he needs a fecal transplant to kill the bug up his butt because he's got a big one. But um, my bathroom humor about fecal transplants and coffee enemas just fills our home with joy. (laughs) I feel bad for my husband. Um, But, you know, I'm really happy. Hundreds of people have downloaded my weight loss guide. And for you newbies to the show, I wrote a a weight loss e-guide called the Live to 110 by Weighing Less. And if you go to my site, livetoone110.com, it is available to download for free. So just sign up for it on the homepage or on the sidebar where it says join the Live to 110 community. The e-guide is a 35-page basic weight loss e-guide filled with the latest research about diet and exercise, how to conquer your cravings, and reduce stress. And it's a primer for my book, When Diet and Exercise Are Not Enough, a step-by-step plan to eliminate your roadblocks to weight loss, which will be available sometime next year or uh, the next year after that at the rate that I'm going. <laughs> it's a very slow process. But, you know, I want to produce a really good product, so just these things take time. Today, I'm so honored to have our guest, Moises Velasquez Manoff, on the show. He's a fellow blogger at MoisesVM.com. Moises has written extensively, mostly on science and environment, for the Christian Science Monitor. His work also appeared in the New York Times Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, the Indianapolis Star, among many other publications. 
Moises' first book, An Epidemic of Absence, is a brilliant cutting-edge exploration of the dramatic rise of allergic and autoimmune diseases and the controversial groundbreaking therapies that scientists are developing to correct these disorders. His book explores why we're so vulnerable to immune system malfunction evident in the dramatic rise in cases of allergies and autoimmune disease. So I'm so happy to have him on the show. Moises, how are you? Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and why you wrote An Epidemic of Absence? Well, basically because I have been afflicted by some of these diseases my whole life. So I've had food allergies my whole life. I'm allergic to peanuts. I grew out of my allergy to eggs, but I'm still allergic to peanuts and sesame. Um, And then I, I have asthma and I have an autoimmune disorder called alopecia areata where my immune system has essentially attacked my hair follicles, leaving me hairless. So it's been the constant presence in my life. Um, and I think when you're a kid, you you uh, ask why and the doctors can't answer you because they don't know why this happens to you. Um, they don't know where it came from. What they can try to do is treat it. And in this case, the treatments aren't very effective. I mean, no one knows really how to deal with autoimmune disease generally. And in terms of allergic disease, everything is about managing the symptoms, not about fixing it entirely. So as a science writer, as I was starting uh, you know, a few years ago, actually some time ago at this point, but I was starting and I, said, I thought I'd look into this question again of why these diseases, uh, first of all, happened to me. And what I heard, the first thing I discovered was that they weren't just happening to me, they were happening to everyone. One of the, the alarming trends in the late 20th century was that, that these diseases were increasing pretty dramatically in prevalence, like two and three times for allergic disease and even more for some of the autoimmune diseases, you know, up to four times, three times, um, far more for things like inflammatory bowel disease. And uh, so everyone's using the word epidemic to throw to, to describe this, this increase at the end of the 20th century. Uh, and um, I decided to write around one of the really interesting theories, trying to explain the increase in these diseases, which uh, the theory has been called the hygiene hypothesis. That's almost everyone who who works on the, in this area thinks that's a horrible term, um, even though that's the one that's stuck. And the very, very briefly, the idea is we're just too clean for our own good. But then, of course, this is not about personal hygiene. It's not about taking showers. This is about what we've done as a society um, and lost contact with an array of organisms that actually properly calibrate our immune system. And then, you, you know, not taking a shower is not going to really help you in that regard. Yeah. So, <laughs> So that's the that's the genesis of the of the book. Well, so you refer to bacteria, probiotics, and parasites as old friends in your book, the An Epidemic of Absence. What exactly do you mean by this? So that's a term I borrowed from a scientist named Graham Rook, uh, and he's trying to think up better ways of, of formulating the hygiene hypothesis because everyone thinks about showers when we talk about it, um, and. What he's getting at is that these are organisms that have been with us possibly since the Paleolithic, but they're, they're organisms that were sort of ever present during human evolution. And there's an important distinction there. Um, this is not about infections like pandemic infections, like the plague or like smallpox or like um, uh, some of the measles even or the flu, because those organisms, some of which are bacterial, some are viral, are organisms that are very recent arrivals to the human body. Most of them jump over from animals. So, we, you know, we settled down a farm about 12,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 
got all these animals, domesticated them, and then we started acquiring their viruses um, and their some of their bacteria, and those became human pandemic diseases. And one way to look at it is that that organisms that cause these diseases, um, they are sort of uh, they don't can't they haven't figured out how to be in your body without killing you essentially. So if you look at it from the perspective of an organism that's trying to survive, which they're trying to do just like you are, that's a bad strategy in groups of small and small groups of people because then you kill all your potential hosts and then you have nowhere to go. So the organisms that are old friends have a much older kind of strategy um, that goes back to times when we were small groups of people. What they do is they persist in your body and they don't kill you because that is, it's counterproductive. Um, those include intestinal parasites, which they don't um, reproduce. Most of the species, in any case, don't reproduce inside your body. They actually, so you can tolerate a certain number of parasites and sort of not have to evict them because you don't have to worry about them replicating like mad, like say the smallpox uh, virus, and and basically overwhelming you and killing you and turning you into kind of like mush. Uh, they just sort of sit there and you can tolerate them. And in fact, tolerance is a kind of survival strategy for the old friends. And of course, I'm talking about the bad old friend. That is the old friends that have a cost on your body. There are also, if you think of a sort of gradient of organisms, on one side of the parasites that have a cost, but they may also properly calibrate your immune system. On the other side are the purely good mutualists. And those are sort of the intestinal bacteria that are more like symbionts. They're more like the bacteria in, let's say, cows that help them digest grass or the bacteria in, um, in any organism that needs its bacteria, which are most organisms, to digest its food. We just don't think of our – we haven't historically thought of ourselves as falling in that category, but we, we do, it seems, fall in that category, which is that we have these very highly evolved, long-standing relationships with – uh, with bacteria and they help us digest food, they help us, they help calibrate our immune system, they, and maybe most important, they protect us against organisms that otherwise might come along and just, you know, turn us to mush. Well, Those are the old friends. No, don't the old friends just become a problem, say, when the host itself, the person is nutrient deficient or ill or toxic, and then the these parasites are able to grow out of control and then they start causing problems. It's kind of like the level of infection. Um, well, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not willing to say that. I think that, um, parasites are parasites because they're stealing something from you. It's a strategy. It's a, it's a survival strategy where instead of, uh, getting into a relationship where they are purely, uh, contributing to some greater whole, what they're doing is they're just remooching. Um, so what, what they take from you is a whole bunch of stuff, depending on the parasite. But let's say hookworms. I mean, hookworms are actually eating you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, at the same time, they're, they're manipulating your immune system. And the way this theory works, at least with regards to parasites, is, okay, so they've all, animals or that is parasites like hookworm have been always present on the human body. And they're always present in, in most animals. If you look around the animal kingdom, um, they, they do something, they have a very powerful, persuasive uh, influence on your immune system. That kind of influence was always there. So in some respects, our immune system maybe evolved as optimized to operate under those conditions. So if you think of it like if you had a ball and chain on your foot and you just always had this ball and chain on your foot, you, you'd have various 
compensatory mechanisms to deal with that. And then you suddenly remove the ball and chain. In some ways, you're free, but in other respects, you're going you're gonna to be very awkward now because you're not going to have this weight that you expect uh, pulling you back. And you might overcompensate in other ways. In, similar, in a similar, in, in the analogy is that our immune system is now hyper-reactive. It's more, it's more responsive than it really should be because of the loss of parasites. But am I willing to go so far as to say that parasites are purely good if you are, you know, if, if, if a bunch of conditions are met? Um, possibly if you're well fed, they won't have any obvious cost. Uh, but if you have too many, they, they cause disease. I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's, and if you have different types, uh, they can cause, you know, the, the schistosomes that live in the veins around your, your colon and bladder, they, they pierce your skin uh, in the tropics you're waiting in clear water i mean they they can increase the they can cause bloody urine and all sorts of things i mean that's not if you have blood in your urine that's just not good it means that there's some damage being caused yeah yeah right so i know that there's a tendency to want to say that because it's like to deal with our you know with the cognitive dissonance of the idea of having something that's hurting you also helping you but i think it's important to sort of resist against that that uh tendency and to to just keep a, a nice, strong, clear view of the fact that these things are, when something is a parasite, it's for a reason. That's because they have an arrangement where they're stealing something from you. Okay. Just because you always have a, a, a thief present doesn't mean that thief is always good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and I, another thing I want to talk about is antibiotics. What, what are antibiotics doing to our health and the health of our families? Because there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that the very steps that we're taking to combat infections also eliminate organisms that keep our bodies in balance and modulate our immune systems. Yeah, so um, the clearest way to think of that is there are the organisms that want to kill you, and then there, there are your symbiotic organisms. Antibiotics take them both out. They don't distinguish. So you're going after some horrible infection. You take a course of antibiotics. Uh, and you end up knocking out also all these symbiotic organisms that, that do all the good things that you just mentioned, like calibrate your immune system, your metabolic function, synthesize things for you. And maybe worst of all, um, you have an array at all times, you have an array of bacteria in your gut. Um, and some of them are kind of like, they're called pathobionts. And what that means is that they don't cause any harm when they're in small amounts. They just sort of sit there. Um, but then you knock out everything else that's holding them back and they expand, they bloom, they, they come out. It's sort of like uh, one of those toxic algae blooms in the, in the ocean. Um, you know, the algae is always there. It's just only when they have the opportunity, they sort of overwhelm everything. And so what antibiotics, there are several ways that antibiotics can be, can be uh, dangerous, at least according to this emerging picture. One is that they kill bacteria that are very good for you. And some of those bacteria, in fact, it, it, you know, the, the animal studies demonstrate that those bacteria that are actually most important for the kind of immune stimulation that we want, that we need, which is to calm your immune system down, are more vulnerable to the broad-spectrum antibiotics. So you end up knocking out particularly healthy bacteria accidentally. And the second way is that you end up opening the ecosystem to these bacteria that are already there, aren't causing any problems in small amounts, but then expand and start causing big problems. And, you know, the classic example is Clostridium difficile, uh, which is this horrible infection. It's antibiotic resistant. A lot of people actually have Clostridium difficile and they have no problem. It, it's because it's just sort of held in check. It's just sitting there waiting for its chance to expand. Um, 
and then you, you and then you know you knock out all the bacteria it gets gains a foothold somewhere new it, it, it uh, the numbers explode and then you have this horrible infection that leads that can lead to death very often that you know it's basically causes a kind of inflammatory bowel disease where you can dehydrate to death or bleed to death or, or all sorts of things and of course as you know what's the cure for C. diff infections stool transplants it's like the most effective cure that, that anyone could have hoped dreamed of and that means taking a little poo from someone who's healthy and putting it in the gut of someone who has this infection and what's so interesting and what the lesson is from that um, that example is that you don't kill off the bad bug you just restore the ecosystem and the yeah. bad bug goes back into whatever corner it came from yeah yeah i've been reading a lot about that lately it's really really interesting and it makes a lot of sense yeah i mean it's ecosystem theory it's it's uh you know an ecologist gets this stuff right away so is uh, so when we knock out the the good bacteria with antibiotics, can they simply be replaced with the probiotics? A lot of people scramble to take their probiotics after their course of antibiotics. Is is that enough? Well, what there's some indication that probiotics. What they do is first, let me just back up. The current generation of probiotics are often uh, they're untested for any of for many of the applications for which people buy them. doesn't mean they don't work. It just means it's not shown that they have worked, number one. Number two, they're sort of arbitrarily chosen in the sense that they say, okay, this is in uh, found in fermented milk. Let's, let's manufacture it and we'll feed it to people. It's got to be good for people. Um, that may or may not be true. No one really knows. So they're really kind of untested. The bacteria we want are bacteria that are native to the human gut. Again, they're not the same ones that are going to be in fermented milk. That's that's Those are bacteria that are native to fermented milk. Um, it doesn't mean they're not good for you. Again, we just don't know. But So one way, though, that even those bacteria can help is they colonize you transiently. And there, is some, there are a few studies at this point, or at least one, that, uh, that show that when you take antibiotics, if you take probiotics, it lowers the risk of one of those opportunists moving in just by sort of occupying the niche yeah. transiently, right? It doesn't, you don't, when you take probiotics, often what they find is that it doesn't uh, permanently move into your gut. Like what you'd like is you take it once and then you'd have this new bug in there and that's good for you. But that doesn't work that way. You have to keep taking it. When you stop taking it often, it just goes away. It's just sort of a transient colonization. Um, but that may be enough to prevent some of these diseases we're talking about. Not, not the diseases, that is the infections that we're talking about. And I think it's since there's very low potential cost and a lot of potential benefit, I don't understand why doctors aren't doing this routinely. You just you know, prescribe a, a probiotic when you're given antibiotic to prevent this horrible outcome that sometimes occurs. Yeah, it drives me insane. Or I have It just doesn't make any sense to me why physicians aren't doing that. It just it makes no sense. Uh, but what about also, um, tell, is it you know reasonable for people to start eating uh, probiotic foods or foods that promote the growth of probiotics like um, inulin and things like garlic and onions and uh, Jerusalem artichokes and things like that that promote growth of good bacteria? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a, is going to end up being more, have a better effect actually than some of the probiotics that are currently available for purchase because what you're doing in that case is you're just feeding the bacteria that you already have that are good for you. Um, selectively feeding them there's a lot of ongoing research in that area um i mean but what you notice there though is you know instead of taking a pill a capsule of inulin it's just let eat real food i mean it should be part of your food already if you're eating well 
Because again, a capsule of inulin, think about how big it is, and then think about how big an apple or potato or, or you know, uh, an actual Jerusalem artichoke, which I've never had actually, but, um, and I understand, understand they're not actually artichokes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, just the actual, think about the bulk of what real food is compared to a little capsule of inulin. I just think that, you know, we'll just, just design your, your diet to be full of real food, real plant foods that are full of this, these digestion resistant starches and full of uh, polysaccharides and full of basically, you know, what, uh, what's already sort of coming out in literature. I mean, the Mediterranean diet is full of that kind of stuff, um, you know, because I, I don't know much about the Paleolithic diets, but as I understand, there's a lot of sort of vegetable eating there too. Oh, yes. Um, vegetable Very much nuts so. and Lots of veggies. It's not all meat. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, so just eat well. Like, I, I don't I, I don't think it's necessary to go start taking pills to get this effect. Just yeah. Right. Yeah, it definitely seems to make more sense to me to eat foods that just promote the growth of the bacteria that's already there and you're good. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a huge topic in the health sphere today and the topic of your book is how an unhealthy uh, gut microbiota contributes to all manner of disease and health conditions including autism and autoimmunity, allergies, depression, obesity, you name it. So how does an unhealthy gut contribute to such a wide range of health issues? Well, it's sort of like, let me count the ways. But, um, you know, I'll just since my focus was on the immune system, I will just point out that right now there seems to be an explosion of literature that implicates the immune system in just about every disease that we are afflicted with in that is non-communicable diseases of which are the main sort of disease burden in the developed world um that the immune system is doing a lot is causing a lot of the problems there are two ways that happens one is if you're sort of uh chronically inflamed that causes damage i mean you know that because say you know if you have an infected cut that's a kind of inflammation that's going on around the infection uh, that can cause a lot of, you know, pain, you, you know, think of just a pimple or something like that. You know, a lot of that pain is actually from your immune response, not from the bacteria uh, that are causing the, the infection. But the second thing is a little bit more subtle, and that is that when you have sort of chronic immune activation, all the normal stuff that keeps you healthy and alive doesn't stop, but it goes to a bare minimum. Um, so in the short term, that's fine. You have some acute problem. You have a fever, say. You get rid of the bug. And then you go back to normal. You return to homeostasis. But with the problem with having changed our gut bacteria, say, is that our immune system is chronically active, possibly, so that there's this chronic interference in, every, in neurotransmitters and metabolic um, function, which has to do with you know things like insulin. And, and uh, there's this chronic sort of just... You know, it's like it's almost like you have a smoldering fire in your in your kitchen or something that's just going on, you know, not allowing you to live your life normally, but in your body, that's biologically happening, and that contributes to every single disease of civilization. And I maybe I shouldn't exaggerate, but many diseases of civilization, um, you know, from dementia to especially uh, obesity, which is again linked to all the other ones, but in heart disease and uh, and um, arthritis. I mean, you know, everything we have essentially. Well, let's talk about autoimmunity. It's one of the fastest growing subsets of diseases in the world. 
affecting between 5 to 8% of the U.S. population alone. So why is autoimmunity becoming such a plague? Well, I'll use an analogy to, um, to illustrate one reason why. Um, there's, there, there are some genes that are involved in making your white blood cells. So you have white blood cells. They're there to protect you. They fight off bacteria, um, and they make sure that those those pathogens don't turn you into dinner, basically. Um, and so, but there are some there are some white blood cells that basically turn the other white blood cells off. You can think of them as the as the uh, the you know in the canine patrol, they're the handlers of the dogs. They're the guys who hold the dogs' backs. So, if you take away the handlers, you just have a bunch of really nasty, snarly, mean dogs. Um, and actually, genetically, there are genes um, that that correspond to that function. So that there are genes when you turn them on that turn cells into handlers. Makes them allows those cells to hold back the other cells. There are certain genetic mutations that occur spontaneously, where those genes are taken offline. And what happens? Those kids, well, they usually don't live very long. They they sort of have this meltdown of autoimmunity, where all their attack cells turn against their own tissues. They also have these horrible uh, responses to to viral infections, where it's just um, they essentially self destruct and they have sort of eczema allergic disease where basically their immune system has no ability to restrain itself it goes hey it goes crazy um so in modernity we know that that is in the last in the late 20th century we know that these diseases have increased we have done probably what that mutation did environmentally without causing without any mutation what we've done is sort of you could think of it as we are not expressing that set of genes as much as we need to and as much as we used to and that the reasons are environmental for everything we're talking about because expression of that subset of genes of that that those those handlers on the canine patrol uh, was dependent on contact with all the old friends and we basically lost contact with all the old friends or many of the old friends that's the explosion of autoimmunity it's so many people think of it as something must be provoking it we're, we're exposed to new infections or we're exposed to toxins i mean you know toxins may be able to provoke it but one really easy way to provoke it is just to simply remove the handlers off the dogs and the dogs go crazy. So, uh, you know, I've heard that to have an autoimmune disease that you have to have a leaky gut first. Is that true? Um, it's unclear only because no one has ever, or at least so far, very, no one has prospectively followed that. People, first of all, no one knows who's going to get autoimmune disease. You can sort of predict because there's some in the family sometimes. But to answer that question, what you do is you'd follow someone who has autoimmune disease in the uh, in the family and take measurements of their gut <laughs> and then see what happened first. Um, it's certainly possible. It, I think it's much more likely that there are many roots to what we call an autoimmune disease. So one root may be that there are gut problems that, that trigger it so that things get through the gut. But I also think that if you have an autoimmune disease, you may subsequently develop a leaky gut. Ah, uh-huh. um, you know, so I think there are many ways to end up in the same endpoint. There are many paths to the autoimmune disease endpoint. Okay. Well, you know, my daughter was diagnosed with a mild form of autism. So this is a topic of special interest to me. So can you elaborate elaborate a little bit on why you think autism is reaching such epidemic proportions and what this has to do with gut flora? Well, um, the hypothesis that I find most compelling um, because it's supported by so much epidemiology is the idea that 
something happens during pregnancy that uh, triggers the maternal immune response. It's not really a trigger. It's more that the maternal immune system is a little bit more activated than it should be. And that some of those, so what happens is that immune signaling proteins, they can cross the placenta and they, and the brain is developing. And it turns out that for reasons no one quite understands, neurons, as they are migrating into place in the developing brain, actually use immune system signals to get into place, to follow, to figure out where they need to go. So what happens is you're, you're changing the signaling of where they need to go a little bit. So you end up with a brain that's a slightly differently wired. Um, and so the, the evidence in support of this idea is that, you know, the, the factors that are, are predictors of autism include infections. If mothers happen to get an infection while pregnant, they also include if the mothers happen to have an autoimmune disease while pregnant. Um, and they include if, if the mother has an allergic disease or a metabolic disorder. And one of the metabolic, the, the, one of the uh, symptoms of a metabolic disorder is this low grade inflammation. So there are all these things that point to inflammation being a factor in pregnancy, plus it's supported by, at this point, a number of animal studies, including on, on, on primates. Um, so, but, you know, if you back up for a second and then you, you, you think, okay, well, so our immune system may be operating differently than it did in our past because of these changes to the environmental inputs, changes to contact with old friends. You're going to immediately say, okay, well, there's a, the immune system has its fingers in a lot of different aspects of being alive because it's really important. I mean, one of those aspects is pregnancy, of course. I mean, there's this very intricate balance of, of tolerance and um, non-tolerance that has to happen during pregnancy, essentially, because the mother is tolerating something that's foreign inside of her. Um, that's what a baby is. Um, you know, a baby is, there, there are these weird parallels between babies and parasites as an aside, you know, but, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of you, if you look at the pregnancy literature, you see that actually there's this sort of analogy where they call the baby a parasite because it's actually sucking stuff out of the money, you know, like the calcium from her bones and it's actually just taking all these nutrients. That's how it feels too. Like you're so <laughs> depleted after you have the child, <laughs> they yeah. take, robbed everything. It's just a parasite the last 25 years, right? Or periods of, of, of economic uncertainty even longer. Yes. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so you would expect if you change immune function, you would see sort of uh, accidents during pregnancy more often. It may be that autism is one of those. Um, that's And so the, the hypothesis as to gut flora would be that it's actually the mother's gut flora changing her immune function or, or, or you know, altering it and, and then changing development of the fetus via that, but via its modulation of the maternal immune system. Um, that said, a number of studies have also shown differences in gut flora of autistic children themselves. Um, Again, it's the cause and effect problem, number one. Number two, those studies are all over the place. Some studies don't show any difference. Number three, the, the differences they do show are never quite the same. Um, so it's really, it's totally undecided at this point, whereas I think the prenatal stuff is much more compelling and consistent with itself. Uh, yeah, it's really, I, it's really compelling, and it definitely makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, so let's talk about uh, food sensitivities a little bit, because this is a huge, huge factor that affects 70% of the population. And I, I've heard some new theories on food sensitivities that they're, they're not only caused by leaky gut, 
but can simply be the result of not having gut bacteria to digest our food properly. You know, take grains, for instance. Uh, Chris Cresser spoke about the idea that we don't handle grains well due to an impaired microbiota in his speech at the 2013 Ancestral Health Symposium. And uh, it, it may not be that grains themselves are the problem, but our gut dysbiosis. So what are your thoughts on this uh, on this issue? Well, I mean, I I've written about that, you know, for the New York Times, especially with regards to grains. Um, I, obviously, I agree. So I think that has I never really bought the idea that the grains themselves were changing, because I don't really think that just because. I don't think that you should be responding to proteins that aren't also damaging you somehow. Um, you know, in other words, your body should be able to d- distinguish between things that are attacking and things that aren't. And uh, a grain, the, the peptides in wheat that seem to bind to those receptors are simply not attacking you. So the argument has always been, okay, well, in people with those genetic variants, um, the grain binds more tightly to the uh, to the receptors, and thus they're more vulnerable to having celiac disease. That may be true, but it's it's there's a deeper understanding of immunology where you can bind your your white blood cells can bind to proteins and not uh, not present them to the rest of your body as a threat. It can do the opposite. So the question is not whether or not they bind. The question is why they're suddenly presenting them as as a threat. And it turns out there's all those what terrific research on how what microbes are present can determine whether it's whether your uh, white blood cells perceive these these patterns these are just proteins the glutens as a threat or not or whether they perceive them as what they are which is just um, another protein coming down the alimentary canal so this is a this is hugely important um, and I think that um, it's it's also the answer to why we have food allergies, the answer to why we're uh, increasingly allergic to um, um, just about everything, really. It's what else is there that's determining how you respond to the incoming proteins. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting. It has a huge, huge um, you know, impact on uh, just people improve their gut flora. They can start eating more foods that we previously thought are, are bad for us because I don't buy... A, a lot of the arguments in the paleo world. I don't take, just take things at face value. I want to know why. I'm not sure if the listeners do as well. So uh, let's talk a little bit about H. pylori because this is a, another, uh, you know, big issue because this parasite infects roughly 50% of the population. And, you know, many consider a bad parasite, something that must be eradicated with antibiotics. You know, I went to my doctor and they said, oh, you have an H. pylori infection. Let's give you antibiotics. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, I just did some Anuka honey and the, the infection, so-called infection went down, was reduced. So is it possible that this organism is not as problematic as many think? Well, were you having symptoms? No, I was not. But my father, I was having some health issues. I actually, I was had been vegetarian for a couple of years, and I just I didn't feel good, and I just didn't have any energy. All kinds of little weird issues, th- thyroid issues. So I just check everything. So that's where that uh, that diagnosis came from, just in my blood work. Um, but I was reasonably concerned because my father died of esophageal cancer, which could you know many people think that uh, or their studies show that H. pylori can lead to uh, stomach cancers and things like that. So 
Yeah, I just my question is, is this organism like we know that it can lead to certain cancers and other ulcers and things like that. But is it as problematic as as we think? Well, yeah, it, it is definitely linked to stomach cancer, which you don't want to get. It's definitely linked to ulcers, which you also don't want to get. Um, but it's like everything a little bit more complicated. Uh, and one of the emerging ideas is that. Uh, well, so let's back up a second. The reason that that helmets that worms um the way they manipulate the immune system is they basically induce all this the these cells that are suppressive they i talked about the handlers on the attack dogs they basically conjure up handlers for attack dogs right and then there's something called the bystander effect of that which is that all your immune activity going on is suppressed these handlers run around and grab all the dogs um h pylori does the same thing it induces the, the with the way that it is able to live in your body for so long and not be fought off is that it convinces your immune system to tolerate it on some level. Um, now, if you if you get cancer or ulcers from it, that is actually a failure of tolerance um, and and a failure of it to induce those cells in you. Uh, so, one reason that may happen is you don't get it early enough. So it seems that uh, there's something called the um, the African paradox, which seems to suggest like Africans can harbor H. pylori without as many troubles as Europeans. Now, part of that is a strain that is in Africa, but it's also that if you get it earlier, some of the animal studies show, you tolerate it better, number one. Number two, it induces more of those cells. Number three, it's more protective against asthma later because it induces those cells. Um, let me just emphasize though if your doctor says get rid of your H. pylori infection because it's causing gastritis or what have you you should probably do it because it's probably a problem now if they just happen to find it and they say you should get rid of it prophylactically well, that's a different question it's, that's a very difficult it's funny that you mentioned that actually as an aside because I was at a gastroenterologist a while ago and he was saying that he refuses to get tested for H. pylori <laughs> because he knows all the science he knows also that um, not all, but he knows some of it. He knows actually that it seems to protect against geoesophageal, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, heartburn. Yeah. Um, which he did so, like, you can get rid of it and immediately start getting heartburn. Heartburn is actually not that easy to treat if you have it chronically. So, anyways, it, this stuff is like making inroads, and there are even doctors who refuse to get tested because they don't want it. Because if you have a carcinogen, which H. pylori is classified as, you're supposed to get rid of it, period. That's just what the manual says. Um, Anyways, it, like all things, it's way more complicated. It may protect against allergic diseases and possibly some other inflammatory diseases, but it's also even more so than, than multicellular parasites, than worms. It has a dark side because, it, uh, because how you respond to it greatly determines whether it hurts, hurts or helps you, and how you respond to it is determined by when you get it, by your genes, by what other bacteria are also present. There are some really interesting studies showing that like if you have a lot of lactobacilli, you tolerate H. pylori better. Um, so there's there's all these second party factors that can determine whether or not you come down with gastric cancer, you know, which is a big deal. Uh, that said, Martin Blazer, who sort of pioneered the whole H. pylori, uh, let's just call it like a rebranding, um, he does argue. I don't know if he's being provocative, but he does argue that kids should have H. pylori and then have it eradicated as adults when it becomes a risk factor for cancer. That way you get the benefit, but not much of the cost. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about worm therapy. In the book, you tell the story of how you went to Tijuana in Mexico and uh, to infect yourself with a hookworm. So I keep hearing all about studies or individuals healing themselves with hookworms or fecal transplants uh, that you talked about earlier. Can you elaborate on some of these terribly interesting new treatments? <laughs> yeah, well... Um, and, why, and why you played guinea pig. Yeah, so I'll answer, let's see, I'll answer in reverse. Okay, so there's all this science suggesting that parasites are protective. The animal models, models are meaning mostly rodents are completely unequivocal. Parasites protect against everything in animals. Um, then there are these human studies where a scientist named Joel Weinstock developed a parasite native to pigs for the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, had these incredible results in his first very small trials on humans with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So I, as I recall, it was like 75% cure rate, remission. I mean, this is a disease that's very difficult to treat. It's very painful. It's a horrible disease. And he had this amazing rate. So what's happened, there's other work as well, um, you know, studying parasites in naturally infected people showing that they, of course, have fewer of these diseases. So you put that all together, some human studies, animal studies are unequivocal, and then a correlative observational studies where populations that have hookworm, for example, have less uh, asthma. And what you get are a bunch of desperate people who decide to take things into their own hands and start treating themselves with parasites. And the, the, the parasite of choice in this case is uh, well, in my case, the one that I explored was hookworm. So people are selling it. So I arrive on the scene a, year, a few years ago, and I come, become aware of this underground movement, which I call the hookworm underground. Um, I, I find some people that have some remarkable stories of remission that I'm able to sort of confirm. I also find some people who don't do so well, who I'm also able to confirm, who basically makes things worse for them. Um, and I decided just to go test it myself. Like, there's not, there's no way, you don't know what to believe until you test it yourself. Right? You are a brave soul. <laughs> um, so I go down to a clinic in Tijuana, of course, where everything that's not approved uh, by the FDA goes. Um, and I get uh, 30 hookworms. They go through your skin. You feel kind of itching. And, and so to make a long story short, I have some pretty not not pleasant symptoms, but it, it's also true that I see some improvement and my eczema disappears. Mm, um, the best part was actually that season of hay fever for half the season. I had no hay fever. Like it was this incredible just clarity in my nose. And that's been reported actually in literature before um, by scientists who experimentally infected themselves. That was the other thing though, is I knew a bunch of scientists had experimentally infected themselves so I knew it couldn't be that bad if scientists were willing to do it. People who basically are trained in how horrible these things are were willing to do it. Um, it couldn't be that dangerous or that bad. Um, uh, yeah, so if it didn't work out, you can just eradicate them, right? In theory, yes. Uh, but the truth of the matter is actually I had I did eradicate them after about, uh, I think it was two years. No, I'm forgetting how long I had them. But uh, first of all, the beneficial effects were very variable when I had them, number one. Um, and number two, the side effects never really went away. Now, I had interviewed people who had, like, no side effects. I couldn't figure out that out. I don't know if they were just so – I don't know if their primary condition was so terrible that anything was an improvement, you know? So, like, it was a relative uh, thing that I – you know, since I, my, my autoimmune disease is essentially cosmetic, uh, I'd feel maybe very differently if I was going from inflammatory bowel disease to 
the symptoms of a hooker infection, which are probably less. Um, but I don't know. I, I interviewed people. They I said they had no symptoms. I suspect part of that is genetic. Everyone responds differently. Uh, I suspect maybe some of them had taken immune suppressants prior to trying the worms. So maybe, you know, what hurts you in these infections is your own immune response. So if they already have a kind of dampened immune response, then it's not going to hurt them as much. So um, what's next? Are you going to go up to Canada and pop some poop pills? <laughs> No, well, poop pills haven't really shown any indication for anything that I have. Okay. Uh, you know, that would be like a C. diff. If I got C. diff, yes, I wouldn't go to Canada, though. I'd just find a donor of my friends. Yeah, I heard there's a guy that's developing an, an actual poop pill where it's yeah, got a tri- yeah. triple ply coating, so it only, you know, uh, disintegrates in your either small or large intestine. Yeah, that's uh, that's the group uh, M. M. Allen Verico's group, I think. Yeah, that that's uh, that's very promising. Yeah, it looks interesting to me. It's just the fecal transplant reverse, just going in the other end. I spoke to microbiologists during the course of my book that were doing this back in the fifties, and then they were told to stop doing it. They didn't understand why it worked. They just knew that if you were going to give someone, if you were going to do surgery and give someone antibiotics, you should give them some of their own poop after. Yeah, And then when whatever the administration of that hospital discovered that they were feeding people their own poop and pills, they were told to stop. But here they, here we are 60 years later, and it's it's like this miraculous cure. So yeah. this yeah. is not total news. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, what are some of the best approaches or lifestyle change that you can give the listeners to increase old friends in the body and their benefits? Um. What I always say to that question is I'm only willing to recommend things that I know that have no cost and lots of potential benefit. Nothing is proven yet. So the answer is we don't know. But there are things you can do like eat better, like eat more real food, like lay off the refined food, lay off the junk food, all that stuff selects for uh, unfriendly bacteria. Um, That's not going to hurt you. It's a lot of potential benefit, very low potential cost. Exercise, a lot of potential, the stuff you already know, right? Do all that stuff. Um, the stuff that's, that you can maybe sort of take away from some just thinking differently is when you have, take your kid to the doctor and, and the doctor says they have an infection or they have otitis media, what have you, you can say, do we have to use antibiotics? I wouldn't say don't use antibiotics as a rule, as a hard and fast rule, because if you don't, kids die from infections. But um, you may find that your pediatrician is surprisingly receptive the idea of waiting and seeing if something clears up because it might be viral um, because they're worried about antibiotic resistance these days. Uh, so that's another thing. But again, I don't think you should just swear off antibiotics as a, as a, as a rule for your life. Um, yeah, I mean, they, that, they save lives. They, they are effective in many cases. Yeah. So, and then the other thing is, um, you know, Daycares have been shown to be protective against allergic disease, and the thinking is just because the kids are in there swapping bugs, that is, uh, native bacteria. Uh, so don't worry so much about that kind of stuff, maybe. I mean, it's true that kids also in daycares get sick more often because they swap bad bugs as well, but in the end, it might be good for them. So yeah, but we need, we need that to modulate their immune system to yeah. make them mature. So I wish I had something like I wish I could say, yeah, go get go get a tapeworm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I'm not willing. I mean, you don't. We don't know the costs and benefits yet of that stuff. That's it's actually being worked. Uh, it's being studied. That that whipworm I mentioned at the beginning, that's being studied in people, and we'll, then we'll know some of the potential side effects. We'll know some of the potential 
like does it do, do in a small number of people do these parasites that aren't native to humans end up in the wrong places which would be really unfortunate you know um like your brain yeah uh so there's that kind of thing that you always have to think of that's why i'm not always willing to uh be so willy-nilly about this like the hookworm underground hookworms at least are native to humans but again i mean it's a totally unregulated experiment where a bunch of people who grew up in the first world who never encountered a parasite are suddenly introducing them into their body no one really knows what that what could happen because of that you know kids people who have parasite infections typically are people who've grown up with parasite infections which is a very different proposition than a 40 year old taking a parasite and putting it in their body. I doubt there's a problem. Parasites are very, in that respect, sort of, uh, they seem to be uh, relatively safe, but you never know. It could trigger something else. It could end up uh, being worse off. You just never know. Yeah, I've always fantasized about infecting myself with a tapeworm to aid weight loss. <laughs> but that, that had me eat all the food that I'm eating. But it's just fantasy. Um, but I, I have a question that I like to ask all of my guests. Uh, what do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? Well, um, I think our pressing, uh, most pressing issue is our lack of contextualizing uh, the current suite of diseases in an evolutionary context that is instead of you know, and always focusing on symptom management and not trying to look at what root causes are. So it's like a vision problem. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I use another analogy from, of course, ecological science, which is there's something called shifting baselines in ecology where, let's say, you know, 400 years ago, we started whaling very, very crazily um, in, the, in the ocean, killed all the whales, essentially, no more whales. You start fishing, you kill all the fish. And what happens, each generation is used to a different baseline of marine life until the, the first generation, like in Boston, there were actually whales in Boston Bay. The last generation, there's no more cod anywhere in the North Atlantic. There's, you know, that, that is, the, the stocks are extremely depleted. That's normal for the current generation. No one backs up and looks at what the, what the ecosystem looks like in its sort of pristine state and what, what it should get back to. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what that's the problem when we look at disease and with the immune system. No one backs up and says, well, what does the immune system look like in its evolutionary context? What else was there? How did it really work in its, when there's a bunch of parasites? We know the parasites were over there all the time. How does the immune system work when there's parasites present? It works very differently. I mean, the irony is there's some really interesting studies out of uh, Israel where you know, they have immigrants from all over the world. Some of their immigrants come from Ethiopia. The, the immigrants from Ethiopia have all these parasite infections. They come, they try to vaccinate them. The vaccines don't take because they have all these parasite infections and their immune system is so suppressed. And they complain about it. They say, well, we got to deworm them to even get these vaccines to work. But here's the irony. They might be seeing the way the immune system is supposed to work. What they call hypo-responsive, as in not responsive enough, may actually be the sort of way that it's always operated. It's less responsive. It's less easily provoked. Those people are still alive. They still survive. You know, I mean, clearly we, we, we can survive with less immune activity than, than we think. Um, so that's my analogy. My, my, I guess my exhortation is that if people would back up and look a little bit at the bigger picture, I think we could pro probably sort of ask the right questions for the chronic diseases that are afflicting us. Yeah, that's, that's very compelling. Absolutely. 
So uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about you and where they can find you and, and whatnot? Well, I'm a journal. I'm a science writer. I'm a journalist. Um, I'm, I write for the New York Times fairly regularly. I have written for Mother Jones as well. Um, you can go to my website, Moises, V like victory, M like Mary.com. My book is available on Amazon, An Epidemic of Absence, if you want to read it. Um, I'll have more stuff coming out in the near future. I'm giving a TEDx talk next month, supposedly. Um, and uh, just go to my website. All the stuff will be there, MoisesVM.com. Oh, yeah. I have to t- definitely check out that TED talk. Absolutely. Yeah, that'll be uh, November 16th. It should be up after that. And that will be up on their website? Um, it's you know it's a TEDx event, so it's not that they the main TED website puts up stuff uh, that from TEDx events that they like. They don't always put up everything. Over okay, TED. it'll be on my website. Okay, great, great. Well, Moises, thank you for coming on the show. I'm thrilled that you agreed to come on and help people to understand why they you know should be afraid of not having enough healthy bacteria in their body. And, you know, thank you for writing this invaluable book to explain the true underlying cause of many health issues that are plaguing our society today. It was a really good read. I really enjoyed the book. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, because I started to read it thinking, like, oh, another uh, probiotic gut book. But it was really drew me in how you wove the, the your points into the stories that you told. It was really, really well written. I really liked it. Thanks. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. So everyone, if you want to learn about, more about health, uh, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at I Will Live to 110. I'm also on YouTube at Wendy Live to 110. And if you want to learn more about weight loss or the modern paleo diet, my version of paleo, go to live to 110.com and sign up for my free 30 plus page Live to 110 by Weighing Less e-guide and my 14 part email series about the modern paleo diet, which are all about how to live a long, healthy, disease-free life. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Remember, the time to be thinking about your health is while you still enjoy it, not waiting until you get sick. So thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I'll see you very soon.